Blog Talk Radio. Something big is about to hit the four persons. No, you did has already recorded our theme song. We are already friends and supporters of each other's ministries. Now, Lisa Marie Nicole is officially joining us as a show host and we could not be more thrilled. The demand for appearances on the Rocking for God show has been extraordinary including a very significant guest for the kickoff show. Lisa Marie Nicole, Rocking for God on the Four Persons Network. It's coming October 7th. Don't miss it. about the Gospel of Matthew are written by Jesuit Daniel J. Harrington in the Collegeville Bible Commentary. Matthew's Gospel has a strongly Jewish flavor. Its concerns are to place Jesus of Nazareth within the traditions of God's chosen people and to show how the same Jesus burst the bonds of those traditions and brought them to fulfillment. From beginning to end, there is a tension between tradition and newness. Neither pole of the tension is rejected. The interplay between the two generates life and fresh insights. Matthew takes pains to point out how this or that event in Jesus' life fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. All through the account of the passion and death, He assures us that those terrible events conform to God's will, as expressed in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, at certain points, Jesus seems to contradict or abolish some precepts of the law. He can do so because, as the Son of God, He is the authoritative interpreter of the Jewish tradition. The identity of Jesus is expressed in terms 
that have rich Old Testament backgrounds. Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, or Christ, wisdom, and so forth. All of these titles express aspects of Jesus' identity, but no one of them alone is adequate as a description of him. The two most prominent terms are Son of Man and Son of God. The former title reflects Jesus' way of referring to himself and probably has some connection with the heavenly figure of Daniel 7. The latter title could be used in the Old Testament with reference to the king. When applied to Jesus, however, these titles take on new meaning and go far beyond whatever content may be attributed to them in the Old Testament. The identity of God's people is also worked out in the tension between tradition and newness. Matthew has no doubt that Israel is God's people, and so a major thrust of his gospel is to show the continuity between the Israel of old and the new thing that God has done in Christ. But after the coming of Jesus, who are God's people, and who inherits the kingdom of God? Matthew's answer is simple and straightforward. Those who follow Jesus are God's people. Attachment to, to Jesus the Jew makes membership in God's people possible even for those who are not Jewish by birth. Those Jews who do not accept this new definition of God's people are said to belong to their synagogues, which are also called the synagogue of the hypocrites. When the person whom we call Matthew determined to write about Jesus, he decided to write a gospel, a literary form, something like a biography. Though surely not a biography in the 19th or 20th century use of the term, Matthew's gospel does follow the story of Jesus of Nazareth from his birth through his public activity as a preacher and a healer up to his death and resurrection. Matthew could have written a long letter or a poem or a chronological report of the events in Jesus' life. Instead, he chose to write a narrative about Jesus. His gospel is a collection of stories that portray Jesus as a powerful and living person. By means of these vivid stories, we are invited to become part of the story of Jesus, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. 
If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Christianity, he responded, uh, 
But I have not given it up. Christianity is the integration, completion, or the crown of the synagogue. For the synagogue was a promise, and Christianity is the fulfillment of that promise. The synagogue pointed to Christianity. Christianity presupposes the synagogue. So you see, one cannot exist without the other. What I converted to was living Christianity. When he was asked why he did not join one of the Protestant denominations, he responded, because protesting is not a testing. I do not intend to embarrass anyone by asking why I wait 1,500 years to protest. The Catholic Church was recognized by the whole Christian world as the true church of God for 15 consecutive centuries. No man can halt at the end of those 1,500 years and say that is not the, the true church of Christ without embarrassing himself seriously. I can accept only that church which was preached to all creatures by my own forefathers, the twelve apostles, who, like me, issued from the synagogue. I am convinced that after this war, the only means of withstanding the forces of destruction and of undertaking the reconstruction of Europe will be the acceptance of Catholicism, that is to say, the idea of God and of human brotherhood through Christ, not a brotherhood based on race and supermen. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I was Catholic at heart before the war broke out, and I promised God in 1942 that I should become a Christian if I survived the war. No one in the world ever tried to convert me. My conversion was a slow evolution, altogether internal, years ago, unknown to myself. I gave such an intimately Christian form and character to my writings that an Archbishop of Rome said of my book, The Nazarene, everyone is susceptible of errors. But so far, I, uh, as I can see, as a bishop, I could sign my name to this book. I'm beginning to understand that for many years I was a natural Christian. If I had noticed the fact 30 years ago, what has happened now would have happened then. Yeah, and I want to emphasize a couple of things that Luke said there that I think are very, very important to open this up. First of all, that's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. That's the essential theme of the Gospel, gospel of Matthew is that Matthew, uh, easily the most meticulous of the four Gospel writers, is almost like building a case. He's building a court case. In fact, I, I think there's... If I remember correctly, there's over a hundred references to the Old Testament that Matthew meticulously shows as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The other theme that Luke said that I want to emphasize is that Matthew, we have strong reason to believe, was originally written in Aramaic. And I'll give you two examples. In Matthew 16, Jesus refers to Peter as Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah. That's Aramaic. And then in Matthew 27, we see Jesus crying out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Aramaic. So we have reason to believe that this book was originally written in Aramaic, uh, targeting the Jewish audience, and then later converted into Greek. And to kind of emphasize this point, of who this was targeted at, 
and how this is telling the story about Jesus as the fulfillment with a genealogy. And I think now would be a good time for me to make a, a few comments about the genealogies that are fascinating, and then we'll kick it off, uh, kick off the next part from there with, with Luke's answers. And uh, affirming the connection of Christ to Israel is Matthew's aim. He helps us to understand the genealogy that starts off the gospel. The Collegeville Bible Commentary keenly points out that the genealogy is usually traced through the fathers. And indeed, this one starts in that fashion. But it starts with Abraham, not with Adam. So Matthew is not taking the genealogy all the way to Adam because he's focusing on Jesus' connection to the Jewish people, to to the nation of Israel. Matthew is clearly emphasizing Jesus' lineage in the nations of Israel, and this lineage shows the line from Father Abraham through all the other fathers. But curiously, it shakes the whole thing up by including four women, and that's very unusual, very irregular. And it's really irregular when you consider who the four women are that are included in the genealogy. Let's take a look at them. First, We have Tamar. Tamar conceived by her father-in-law, Judah, by tricking him into thinking she was a prostitute. Then we have Rahab. Rahab actually was a prostitute, and her life was spared because of her cooperation with the spies of Joshua. And the tradition that she was the mother of Boaz is something that's only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Then we find Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner, but she's joined to Israel through her husband's family. And finally, we have the wife of Uriah, who, of course, is Bathsheba. And David committed adultery with her and had her husband killed. Bathsheba, amazingly enough, though, became the first queen mother an office that is a clear typology of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Likewise, the lineage through Judah, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, is all preserved. It's just amazing, folks. So in the genealogy, Matthew is paradoxically showing the precision of the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham, also showing that God draws... uh, a straight path with crooked lines. Now, why was this necessary for Matthew to demonstrate this? Well, my sense of that is that Matthew is setting stage for understanding that God is the master in control, even when it appears like chaos. And the entire life story of Jesus fits this narrative, from his birth in a stable because there was no room for them in, in uh, no room for them in the inn, to the flight to Egypt. His parents searched for him when he was 12 to his capture, his trial, and his horrific death. Amidst that whole drama, God used the most bizarre situations and the most unlikely characters to carry out his plan. Now, I suppose, Luke, that Matthew would have to make that case, wouldn't he? Because he came from a profession that was reviled by the very people he's appealing to, 
Matthew would need to build a larger case of how and why the Messiah would use a former extortioner to help fulfill his mission. I'd love to hear your comments on this. Well, yeah, and it's uh, interesting because this starting with Abraham, and uh, we're starting with the promise of Abraham. And even though the Jewish nation, you know, as soon as they were given the Ten Commandments, they became adulterers. You, you hear over and over again this theme uh, through, through the Old Testament of uh, God as the husband and the, and the Jewish people as the bride. And you hear constantly hear this theme of a marriage, but then when they fall into sin, this is adultery in the marriage. And so we're seeing an image where even though uh, the Jews constantly fell into adultery, we're going to discuss this thing of, of hesed, which is a steadfast love. And uh, I just want to mention it just right here, just for a moment. We'll go into it a little further later on. So God established this steadfast love with his people, even though they kept falling into adultery and, uh, from, from his covenant relationship with them. And God, even though uh, the Jews fell from grace with God, uh, God kept his promise to Abraham. And so we see how God kept this promise to Abraham all the way through time, while at the same time, the Jews were constantly, you know, falling on their faces. And, uh, and he did this even through Gentiles, even through pagans. As time went on and on and on, he shows that no matter what, what he says is going to be done. And that will that was done ended up as us being the fulfillment of the promise. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. It's like everything that the devil does to uproot it and turn it upside down, God takes it and spins it around and, and, and works it to his advantage. And that is the salvation story. Yes, definitely. And it is amazing. It's true. So uh, if we go on from here, uh, Tertullian wrote, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. While Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and laying the foundation of the church, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what was pre uh, preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon the breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence uh, at Ephesus. Now, I, I want to take a little sidetrack here. It's something I was just uh, reading and are coming to a conclusion of rec recently. It, it's kind of a theory. Uh, if, if we look at the Gospels, we can look at the Gospel of Luke in the beginning. We, we, we see the Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, and this is in the mystagogy, the images and everything. In the Gospel of uh, Matthew, we see the kingdom. In the Gospel of John, we see the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, uh, Origen wrote, wrote about this, saying that uh, you really cannot understand the Gospel of John, even, even though it's you know you can see the words, but you won't understand it unless you have Mary as your mother, you know. And uh, so, uh, along with these themes running through the through the Gospel, 
the scholars picked up on this uh, idea of a Q document, the original source. And uh, so they they, uh, they say that they all have this these, these central ideas in them, and they, they believe it came from one central source. And so, like I said, this is just kind of a theory. If you look at what happened with with, with Mark, uh, it was math. It was, it was Peter who basically you know explained to Mark the, the you know the faith. So, and we understand that this. Q document, uh, the closest we could get to it, is the Gospel of Mark. Through Mark, you see you know, the, this continuity between the Gospels. But what's interesting about this is that if we look back in, in, in our earlier uh, radio shows and stuff, uh, it was Peter who had the dream before the Council of Jerusalem, where something that was just completely radical, and that... Uh, uh, in, the, in this in this dream, by showing the, the different foods that uh, are now able you are now able to eat and stuff, he related that actually the Gentiles when he talked to the family of Cornelius, and he he referred to that saying that yeah, you know that uh, you know uh, in the past you know we have been completely separated, and that uh, uh, but God told me you know that you're he's basically I'm paraphrasing you're basically now my brother because. Uh, I'm not to call you uncommon. I'm not to look at you as as, as something that is that is filth, you know. Right. And that's the way right. all these Jews, Jews, yeah, that's the way all these Jews were looking at uh, at the Gentiles. So at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter basically did the, the same. But at the same time, what he did was through the power of the keys, he separated the church from 1,300 years in Mosaic law by saying right. we are all saved by grace, not the law of Moses. So if we look at the keys, we look at the power of Peter. And then we go back and, and, and we see things like this Q document, and we see Mark being Mark's gospel being an es, essential connection to this. You know, it, it, it's almost, you know, information here. Or, or it's theory still, but uh, this this first uh, document, this first authoritative understanding of what the gospel would be, seems like it would come from Peter. Yeah, and um, I can agree with that up to a point. I can agree with that up to a point. But then I, I have to say, okay, where did Peter get all this information? And then, okay, all right, so you say, oh, well, Peter was, you know, one of the original apostles. He's a chief apostle. Okay, all right. But when you look at the Gospels, at all of the Gospels, you see firsthand account information. Oh, yeah, def Definitely. And that, that, seeing, I'm, I'm referring to, I'm referring to some essential aspects inside, in addition to the stories, and it, yeah. it makes it, it, it shows the original ideas, of course, uh, by by being different, because they're different accounts from different angles. Yeah. But even with the different accounts from different angles, you have this uh, continuity there between the four, and the continuity, the points of continuity go back to Mark's gospel, who was uh, Peter's scribe. Yeah. Let me give you one example, Luke, of what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at. Just one example of what the gospels say. That How could we possibly know this? The gospels say that Mary pondered these things and kept them in her heart. 
Well, who on earth would know that except for Mary? <laughs> that what she yeah. pondered. <laughs> who told it to Luke? <laughs> right. This is what I'm saying because there's unless you could read Mary's thoughts, someone had Mary had to tell someone that she kept these things and treasured them and pondered them in her heart. So my theory is, and I, this is where I thought you were going with this, but my theory is when you talk about an original Q, uh, Q document, well, for my money, Q stands for queen. That's that's my two cents. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I think we're right in line with each other because yeah. I'm, 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 I'm referring to just some specific aspects. Right. So it's just an interesting side note. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's um, this book is um, and and let me just say one more thing that you kind of touched on a little bit. It's it's very interesting how each one of these gospels kind of has a little bit different of an angle on it, a little bit different of a perspective on it. Uh, Matthew is easily the most, I, I mean, details, details, details. Uh, but, I mean, John's gospel is more about concept. It's more about themes. Uh, and, and, and Luke is, Luke is trying to make a, make a case, but to a different, to a different audience. You could see that. Well, also, that Luke, he was also a, a, a Gentile. So you, right. you know, they see things through a different perspective, definitely. Yeah. It is, all, all of this simply proves the, the human the process, and it shows that this wasn't some type of you know, forged creation of man, where it shows that people are individuals and look at things as individuals. Right. So Matthew chapter yeah. 1 starts with the begets. Okay, so uh, as you were discussing, we, we start with the begets, so we should understand why, and uh, uh, you, you gave a beautiful you know, explanation on this, and uh, we can elaborate on that. Well, Matthew is giving hope to the Jewish nation who were looking for a Savior who their prophets said would come. So in prophecy, as we have addressed in our, our last show, the Jews understood that the throne of David would always have an earthly leader. And the kingdom of David w would never be destroyed. So they looked for a Messiah. Uh, people, people often use the, you know, the word Jesus Christ almost as if it's uh, God's first and last name. But uh, right. we understand that Christ means anointed in, in the Greek. And in the Hebrew, the word Messiah actually uh, means king. So they were looking for you know, their anointed king. And so the Jews were looking to, to the future to find a king who fulfills the prophecies and, and who will even reestablish the kingdom of David prophecy. And we read from Amos, in that day I will uh, raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will close up the breaches of the walls thereof and repair what was fallen, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, all nations, because my name is invoked upon them, saith the Lord. So, uh, this this is what actually what James quoted at the Council of Jerusalem after Peter, you know, declared uh, uh, that the Gentiles, you know, uh, 
uh, did not need to follow the Mosaic law. So uh, James saw uh, in the church at that time this fulfillment, the the kingdom of uh, David being reestablished in the church. So after the begets, we we don't see the visitation of Mary here. That's not really the, the you know, part of the part of the theme. Uh, Matthew's coming from a different angle. Uh, here it, it was Luke who appears to be the closest to Mary, uh, as uh, as as we just discussed, uh, besides John. But Luke had to have been given the intimate details of the incarnation by Mary, uh, as we discussed. So that's probably why Matthew didn't uh, didn't entertain that direction. But we we see that Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, found out that she was already pregnant, and uh, and. Uh, Human language, you know, I think the word for that is uh-oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, we read, but while he, he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in his sleep, saying, Joseph, son of David, hear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is the Holy Ghost, is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and that thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which the Lord spoke by the prophet. This is Matthew's first introduction to these prophecies, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted God with us. And Joseph, rising up from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took unto him his wife, and he knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name called his name Jesus. So the, Joseph must have had a heck of a lot of faith here. Yeah, uh, okay. We do not see, <laughs> we do not see that Joseph had a vision here and anything that looked miraculous here, but he saw the angel in a dream. So I don't know about you, but uh, I personally would be really questioning my dreams. Yeah. Hey, Joseph, I'm an angel, and while I'm only coming to you in a dream, uh, I want to tell you something. Mary is already pregnant, and by the way, her pregnancy is miraculous, and through her, Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation yeah. of God, comes into the world, fulfilling yeah. the prophecy of Isaiah that you know, that a virgin will give birth, and this king shall have shall save his people. So Joseph simply saw his directive even though he could not truly comprehend what this all meant and followed the Lord as the protector of Mary, even understanding that if Mary was found out to be pregnant out of wedlock, then the the punishment was to be stoned. So one who's betrothed and who becomes pregnant through someone other than the betrothed is to be stoned. This is the betrothed is even before marriage. As we see in Deuteronomy at 2221, uh, it reads, They shall cast her out of the doors of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, and she shall die, because she hath done a wicked thing in Israel, to play the whore in her father's house, and thou shalt take away the evil out of the midst of, uh, of thee. Yeah. So let me interject with a question here. There's a little bit of a quandary that I've been rolling around inside my mind that you can kind of help me uh, with about this this part and and you know you talk about this is this is one of those instances we were just talking about well how did somebody know that Joseph had a dream 
unless it was told to them. This is not something that was public knowledge, but I digress. My question is this. It said that Joseph was a righteous man. Now, this was before the angel appears to Joseph in the dream. Joseph was a righteous man, and he had in his heart to divorce her quietly. Well, that sounds like he wanted to divorce her quietly so that it would not be known that she was pregnant. And in that case, that almost sounds like a deception when the law clearly stated what happened to a person that committed adultery. It sounds like Joseph was plotting to violate the law here. Uh, Clear this up for me, please. But I think that there were some people, if you look at the prophets, and Israel was known as a stiff-necked people. And so they were given the laws, rule, fear, and temporal punishment. But there, there were still people who saw beyond the letter of the law and saw love more than others. And I, and I think this was just a, a, an act of, of love that was there. And this righteousness that was in Joseph was something that was beyond what was the norm. So we were almost seeing a precursor to the mercy that Jesus showed to the woman that was caught in adultery, and they were going to stone her. So we're we're seeing that this was an act of mercy because now in his his book, Consecration to St. Joseph, uh, Father Calloway uh, posits that Joseph knew that Mary was through the uh, Holy Spirit. The gospel doesn't seem to show that. So I, I, I definitely dis- did not agree with Father Calloway's take on it. But so at this point, Joseph suspected that Mary was guilty of sin, but wanted to preserve her from the judgment of the Sanhedrin as an act of mercy. Am I correct? Yeah, I think Joseph was especially picked by God. Joseph was actually living in the Beatitudes before the Beatitudes even begin. Right. So Mary uh, giving her fiat to God, saying yes to this miraculous intervention, also understood that it, it could be a death sentence by 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 uh, but trusted God uh, anyway. And Joseph understood the same, and and he was literally given the responsibility to protect her life. So when we look at all these Old Testament laws, we should also keep our focus on the fact that most everything in these laws are put there to show us the salvation mysteries, even how the sacraments uh, affect the soul. So why did God establish this law of stoning? To show the faith of Mary and how she would choose death over disobedience to God. I mean, while Eve chose disobedience, believing she she would become like God, by and be sep- as as separate from God, and so uh, when Satan said, "You will not die; you will be as gods," this planted in her mind the idea of a false value, a first uh, a false worth separate from God. So, in this imagery is where the church fathers say Mary as the true Eve and mother of all the living. Uh, those who have entered the mystical body of Christ through, through baptism, 
uh, have Mary as our spiritual mother, uh, the mother of all the living. Those who are living is understood from the very beginning as those who have died to the old man, Adam, uh, of sin and rose again through the quickening spirit of Christ in baptism. So Irenaeus wrote, uh, the Lord coming into his own creation in visible form was sustained by his own creation, which he himself sustains in being. His obedience on the tree of the cross reversed the disobedience at the tree in Eden. The good news of the truth announced by an angel to Mary, a virgin subject to a husband, undid the evil lie that seduced Eve, a virgin, a spouse to a husband. As Eve was seduced by the word of an angel and so fled from God after disobeying his word, Mary in turn was given the good news by the word of the angel and bore God in obedience to his word. As Eve was seduced into disobedience to God, so Mary was persuaded into obedience to God. Thus, the Virgin Mary became the advocate of the Virgin Eve, Christ gathering all things into one. By gathering them into himself, he declared war against our enemy, crushed him who at the beginning had taken us captive in Adam and trampled on his head in accordance with the God, God's words to the serpent in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall lie and wait for your head and you shall lie and wait for his heel. So in Matthew chapter two, go ahead. Well, I'm a, I'm a believer in the due rendering of her heel. That's a, that's my take on it, but uh, go ahead, please continue. No, I, I, I'm with you on this. And I, and I think if you go back to the, uh, uh, original languages, even, even some of the original, you know, Jews such as uh, Josephus, uh, it comes across almost as both. So uh, it's a, it, it's kind of a general neutral thing, neutral thing where they both will crush his head. Well, my but my understanding on that is it, it does indeed come across as gender neutral, but my understanding is the usage, the most the more common usage would be the subject of the sentence. It would be based on the subject of the sentence. And when you break the sentence down grammatically, the enmity, I would put enmity between you and the woman. And the woman, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she is the subject. So anyway, yeah. let's continue. Again, we agree. <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, in Matthew chapter 2, in the beginning, Matthew shows us how Jesus' birthplace Fulfilled prophecy. Uh, we read, And thou, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth the captain that shall rule my people Israel. Matthew is quoting uh, Micah here. Uh, and, out, and thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, art a little one among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler of Israel, and his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. Therefore will he give them up even till the time wherein she that travaileth shall bring forth, and the remnant of his brethren shall be converted to the children of Israel. So Matthew has told the Jews that Jesus is born of a miraculous birth. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, whose going forth is from the beginning from the days of eternity and he will be incarnated by way of a miraculous virgin birth from the line of David 
which shows the Jews the prophecy fulfilled of the reestablished kingdom of David through Christ. Uh, so who, who's, who's doing the travailing here? Uh, this is an image of Mary uh, as mother, mother of the church, but is also the image of mother of, of mother church who brings forth their children through baptism into the mystical body of Christ. Uh, this travailing can also be seen as, in the images of the first 300 years of Christianity, which were years where the blood of the martyrs was the mortar for the bricks of the church. Yeah. Uh, we also should see in these words, and the remnant of his brethren shall be converted to the children of Israel, that we are not talking about a genetic line of, of Israel in, anymore here, but a spiritual Israel, because Christ is the true right. image of Israel who marries a Gentile bride. Therefore, Paul writing to the Galatia, who was falling back into the rituals of Mosaic law, while they're living the sacramental life, says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And there's where we pick up where from the beginning, God's promise to Abraham that has said that steadfast love, even though all these things were going wrong, even though the devil intervened anywhere he can in uh, the sins of the Israelites, mm -hmm. uh, culminated here, baptism into the promise fulfilled. Yeah, and it's amazing, Luke, because this is where this theme that you keep bringing up of the seamless fabric plays in so massively. Let me quote what you just said, and the remnant of his brethren shall be converted to the children of Israel. This is picking up on the theme of Genesis 3, that the woman and her offspring, and offspring in this sentence is plural. Her children, not her offspring singular Jesus, her children, we see it again in Luke's gospel when Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of God are my mother, comma, and my brothers and sisters. And then we finally see it, or we see it again in John's gospel in chapter 19, when Jesus from the cross looks down at John and says, behold, your mother and says to Mary, woman, behold your son. And then finally we see it in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, where it says the, the devil made war with the rest of her children. We see the same theme over and over and over again. wanted to point out one more thing that I think you're going to find really neat. Um, when you talked about the, the tree of the cross reversing the sin of the tree of Eden. Um, a couple of years ago, I read the complete works of Anne Catherine Emmerich. I don't know if you've read that, Complete Visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich. No, I haven't. But it's one of the books that all of those little extra details that are in the movie The Passion of the Christ are based on that and Maria Vigretto. One of the interesting things that she said, one of the interesting visions that she had is that when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. The only thing they were allowed to take from the garden, Adam was allowed to take a single branch 
a single olive branch from that tree, which they planted. And that branch grew into a tree, and from that tree came the wood of the cross. This is what Anne Catherine Emmerich said. And I just say that's, a, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, if you, if you put that together with uh, even the imagery of uh, these, uh, this, uh, this curse in abeyance, uh, where uh, the Israelites, uh, after making swearing the oath with God, they uh, they broke that oath. So there was the curse in abeyance was the fact that the Israelites weren't killed right there. Right. And so we go back further and we see Abraham and Abraham with a face so strong that he would sacrifice his own son. And then we, of course the angel stopped that and he might've been sacrificing his own son at the exact same place Christ was sacrificed you know, over 2000 years later. Yeah. Yeah, astounding. Just, just absolutely astounding. So, we see a lot of this imagery of salvation through the the Messiah in uh, Isaiah forty, and we'll go ahead and read here. Speak ye to the heart of Jerusalem and call to her, for her evil is come to an end, her iniquity is forgiven. She hath received of the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness the paths of our God. Every uh, valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough sh- uh, plains, beautiful poetry here, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh together shall see that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we see here the imagery of John the Baptist as the voice in the wilderness, and we know Jesus as one who will shepherd his people, who all flesh shall see, which uh, in many passages re- refers to ruling his people. So there's nothing by chance in Scripture. And uh, an example of this is where Jesus was born. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, in Hebrew, this, the city's name is pronounced Beit Lehem. Uh, means house and lechem means bread together being house of bread Uh, Jesus said I am the bread of life in John 6.35 and I am the manna that came down from heaven in John 6.51 in Bethlehem Gentiles were married into the Jewish nation Uh, Ruth who was a Gentile and this this is where we we show that steadfast love all the way through time here Uh, Ruth who was a Gentile said Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. In some ways, Ruth, although she was a Gentile, she was an image of Mary as an example of God's steadfast love for man. So what is the meaning of the Hebrew word hesed uh, according to Jewish understanding? So one of the Hebrew words for love is hesed, pronounced kesed, which is actually a difficult word to translate in English. That is because there's a strange uh, range of meaning for hesed. Uh, there's a theologian named John Oswald uh, uh, said, hesed is a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. It's called uh, the Fellowship of, of Related Ministries, we read. The prophet Isaiah wrote, 
Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be moved, yet unfailing love, Hesed, for you will not be shaken. So Hesed is not just a feeling but an action that intervenes on behalf of, of loved ones and comes to their rescue, according to uh, author Louis uh, Tverberg. I can't pronounce these words. <laughs> so oh, before, he runs, you, before you continue, uh-huh. it almost sounds like Hesed is a is a precursor or a a a foreshadowing of God's grace. Is that is that a reach or is that that sound accurate? Well, you you can look at it that way too. But uh, uh, Hesed, in, in the context of what was going on in the Old Testament, was God loving and keeping His promise, even though He's dealing with you know uh, as a as a, a husband, an adulterous wife. Yeah, but let me read this last line that you just said again. Hesed is not just a feeling, but an action. It intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue, according to author Lewis. Uh, yeah, that, that, sounds a lot like, that sounds a lot like grace to me, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be grace also in, in, in the context, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, so Hebrew understanding of love, Hesed, is not a romantic, infatuation kind of love. It's a faithful, reliable love. When a wife prays for years for her husband to know God, it is parents lovingly caring for their autistic child. Hesed is faithful. It is loyal, and hesed is love put to action, is, is what's described here in the uh, Hebrew Encyclopedia. And most importantly, hesed is the unfailing love God has for you. So meanings of hesed in the Bible, hesed is one of the most fundamental characteristics of God, consistent with what we know about his covenantal nature. Hesed is wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God, love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, Grace, kindness, loyalty, in short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirement of, of the duty, uh, elaborates Bible scholar Daryl A. Bach. Uh, let me, we see let me interject one in more there. thing. Let go me ahead. interject one more thing real quick. I, I'm just struck by the contrast to today's understanding of love, today's novel understanding of love, which is which is fluffy cloud, pie in the sky feelings that you expect when you know when you get married and you expect they're always going to be there forever. Um, contrast that with the love. True love often has suffering attached to it. They're often inseparable, uh, and you just see that nowhere clearer than in the cross. So I'm just struck by the contrast between. This real love, as Hesed, as the Bible describes it, to this unrealistic, unsustainable fantasy that's called love today. Do you see the same thing? Oh, definitely. Definitely. But this is the love Jesus was describing when he said, uh, uh, there's no greater love than to give up your your life for another. And that was his ultimate expression of Hesed. For people who despised him uh, in in uh, their their sins, uh, and uh, they really didn't even understand, but uh, they knew that they were supposed to follow, you know, the Mosaic law. Right. So, because I mean, let's think about this, this Luke. 
And I've talked to friends about that, and I don't want to interrupt your train of thought too much, but the thoughts are just rolling in my brain here. That's um, great. I just imagine if I were God, okay? If I'm God, the Father, <laughs> I, I, I yeah, wouldn't that's, why, that's like God was telling Moses, get away from these people. I want to destroy them. And, well, and, no, no, that, you know, I, I really don't I, want to. <laughs> I, I joked about that with people, and I said, I wouldn't have been a very good Moses. I would not have been a very good Moses because when God said, move out of the way so I can remove these people from the face of the earth, I'd have taken two steps to the left and said, have at it. And and when they said, (laughs) intervene for us, Moses, no, you chaps had your chance. (laughs) You're on your own now. I'm I'm done with you people. That would have been my attitude. Um, That's why I say I wouldn't have been a very good Moses. And I wouldn't have been a very good God, too, because... When they spit on Jesus and they uh, on my son, they they spit on him, they they punched him, they tormented him. Oh, it would have been scorched earth. It would have been on. I, I would have just wiped them all out. <laughs> but yeah, I can see that. You not. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Please continue. Yeah. Also, if you look at what was happening with the golden calf, it, it, you know. You know, when they're describing what they were doing, they said, and they played, they fell back into pagan, uh, you know, uh, orgies. I mean, it, it was just a mess. So yeah. so for God from that point, you know, to have that steadfast love, and the next thing he did was he gave him the pedagogue of the uh, the second legislation of Mosaic Law, which was all these rituals and ordinances that were there just to try to give him the focus, and in those rituals and ordinances, even as that as that father figure, as that pedagogy, as that uh, strict schoolmaster, was having them sacrifice what they once worshipped. Yeah, and and that just goes to show the love of God is incomprehensible. I mean, um, you know, if, the, if that people had gotten what they deserved, that would have been it. The earth would have opened up beneath them, and they would have been swallowed head headlong. And what could they have said? What could they have said in their own defense? Um, but, um, at, you know, at that point, God actually loved them more than they loved themselves. Well, we don't really understand love. I mean, we we have this fallen nature where we could have these, you know, little ideas in our heads. But we can't come close to understanding the greatness of God as, as, as true love, you know? You know, we also yeah. see this Hesed in Mary's prayer, and this is uh, it, this just appears like this is a spiritual ecstasy that's going on here. And mm-hmm. when Mary said, "My soul doth magnify the Lord; my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, because He has regarded the humility of His handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, because He that is mighty hath done great things to me, and holy is His name. As mercy is." From generation unto generation to them that fear him. He hath showed might his arm. He has scattered the proud and the conceit of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their seat and have exalted the humble. He that filled the hungry with good things and the rich, he hath uh, sent away empty. He hath received Israel, his servant, being mindful of his mercy, that steadfast love. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So he will speak to the seed of Abraham forever. 
this is the spiritual Israel inside the body of Christ, mainly the Catholic Church. Right. So, so Boaz, who who married Ruth, was from the city of Bethlehem and Judah, and was believed to be much older than Ruth. Uh, according to uh, uh, the rabbis, Boaz was uh, about the age of eighty years uh, when he married Ruth, and so manger means to eat is an eating trough for animals. The baby's sheep were swaddled so that they would remain unblemished. The shepherds of Bethlehem were in charge of taking care of the sheep for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about six miles from Bethlehem. So this would be done for preparation for the Sabbath on Friday. And when the sheep were sacrificed and all the blood was drained, the Levitical priest would say, it is finished. The Levitical priest ate of what was sanctified on the altar. I mean, this this is God. There's there's no way around this. You you can't put mm-hmm. this story together without it being you know God's work through humanity. Oh yeah, I mean, and and in the next few weeks, I want people to uh, listen. Well, in the next few months, we're going to be putting together a presentation on the actual Christmas story and why uh, we believe we can actually build the case for December 25th as the actual birthday of Christ. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's just like you said, the details that had to go together, it's just at that particular time that Quirinius is standing in as as governor of Judea. And it's just at that particular time that uh, there's an eclipse, and that eclipse heralds, heralds the, the death of, of Herod the Great. and just at that particular time, the Magi are observing this star rising in the east. All the things that had to come together, and oh, by the way, Caesar Augustus calls for a uh, for a census. So Joseph and Mary have to have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and uh, and you know all of these things. This is kind of what I talked about at the beginning. It all looks like chaos. It all looks like chaos, but it's all part of a beautifully woven plan uh, that God knew every step, every detail along the way. And there's so many things that have to come together in the right order that you're exactly right, Luke. There's no way you can say that it's anything but God. It's beyond the possibility of coincidence. So uh, are, are we going into the second hour here, or, or uh, how do you want to do this? Yeah, yeah. We I I booked us for two hours live. So okay, great, great, great. So, <laughs> and and what we are describing, I mean, this is just the start. I mean, this it is so far beyond the laws of probability, and I just don't understand how there can be atheism. But atheists are there are really no true atheists. It's simply God, but uh, yeah. like I said, th- this is just the start, and, and uh, we're we're going to go further into these so-called coincidences. Who, who so, was it that said? Was it G.K. Chesterton that said uh, the message of an atheist is there is no God, and I hate him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that sums I, it up. Yeah, that that's uh, atheists are not people who really don't believe in God. They're people who are angry at God. Hmm. So we're going to move into the, the this theme again before we move on into the book of Matthew. 
just mm-hmm. to show what was put in place. And so we could have a bigger image as we move on to the book of Matthew. So while Jesus was on the cross, uh, the Jewish nation uh, may have been praying the 18 benedictions. And this included, uh, according to Jewish tradition, uh, the Jews would have been uh, in the temple, would be praying for their redemption. Uh, The seventh benediction uh, reads, look upon our affliction and plead our cause. And redeem us speedily for your namesake, for you are a mighty redeemer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the redeemer of Israel. So the, the second is, uh, uh, according to Jewish tradition, the Jews in the, in the temple would have been praying for forgiveness of sins. And the sixth benediction, forgive us, O our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, O our King, for we have transgressed. Our King, for we have transgressed. For your pardon and for uh, for you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, O Lord, who is merciful and always ready to forgive. Uh, the fifteenth benediction: Speedily cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and let him be exalted by your saving power. For we wait all day long for your salvation. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes salvation to flourish. Uh, in fact, according to the Jewish tradition, uh, they would have been praying for the resurrection of the dead. Oh. You, O Lord, you, O Lord, are mighty forever. You revive the dead. You have the power to save. You sustain the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead from great mercy. You support the falling, heal the sick, set free bound, and keep faith with those who sleep in the dust resembles you, a king who puts to death and restores to life and causes salvation to flourish. And you are certain to revive the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. So God had the Jews who failed to keep the law, who were adulterous in their relationship with him. And he kept his steadfast love with them to the point uh, for 1,300 years, he had them enacting their Christ through the sacrifices and prayers. And according to scripture, on Good Friday, the dead were seen among the living. Hmm. I, I, it's just... They, they, they sacrificed the lamb and then said it's finished. Even as the sacrificed lamb is hanging on the cross and says it is finished. At 3 p.m., they're praying for the coming of the Messiah. Even as they're nailing him to a cross, they're praying for the resurrection of the dead. Even as he it's happening right before their eyes, and they don't even recognize it. They, they, they're, they're, they see the shadow, but they don't see the realization of the shadow. It reminds me of when the Pharisees said to Jesus, uh, you, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll and and you'll raise it up in three days. They they didn't have they had no they were talking to the temple, Luke. They were talking to him. And when Pontius Pilate said, "What is truth?" Uh, let me give you a hint, Pontius. He's in your face. <laughs> it's, just, it, it's just astounding 
that all of these things that were happening and all of the things they were praying for and all of the rituals that they were going through in preparation for was happening even as they were saying the prayer. Yep. Yep. So if if we go on to Matthew 2, we'll read the beginning here. So when Jesus, therefore, was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of King Herod, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to adore him. And King Herod, hearing this, was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ should be born. But they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, so to, uh, for so... It is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth the captain that shall rule my people Israel. Uh, there are many different theories who, who, the, who the Magi were, and, and a number of them is assumed by the three gifts. Uh, Eastern tradition says the, uh, there could have been more than, than uh, 12, and there were three who were leaders who, who gave the gifts. But since the 800s, uh, around the 800s, the church has recognized these three magi, names of uh, Gaspar, Milk, Milkar, and uh, Balthazar. So they're recognized as magi by their gifts. So Matthew is just nailing one prophecy after another, showing Jesus as the Messiah who comes to reestablish the, the kingdom of David here. And uh, like we discussed at the very beginning, this this uh, in the Hebrew, so uh, explicitly showing him the Messiah, but he's also going to show how the Gentiles are brought into the church. In Matthew two fourteen, he writes, "Who arose and took the child and his mother by night and retired into Egypt, and he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which the Lord spoke by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son." Mm-hmm. So we see a type in King David fulfilled in Jesus here, as is written in 1 Kings 8.16. And uh, we'll, we'll read that. From the time I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen any city in all the land of Israel in which a temple should be built where I would be worshipped. But I chose you, David, to rule my people. And, of course, uh, Hosea uh, 11.1, we read, as the morning passeth, so hath the king of Israel passed away, uh, because Israel was a child, and I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. So here, in addition to Jesus being Messiah and king in the line of David, we see that through Jesus comes the spiritual Israel, which will become the church through Christ marrying a Gentile bride. Uh, so the true Moses leads his people out of Egypt, which is sin. And in the Exodus, we hear the father saying, and thou shalt say to him, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. A parallel here of, of Jesus as Israel. But later we will see that Jesus as Israel is establishing the true Passover and the Holy Mass for the general redemption of the world. Uh, this is uh, also the marriage feast that 
which will, will be the culmination. But there, there's no individual salvation with, without the general redemption. And Matthew shows a Moses and Exodus typology in both the first and second chapters. And actually, we're going to see this in part, a little bit mm-hmm. at a time, up to chapter 7. So a little refresher. In chapter 1, Jesus is born as the bread of life. And through Moses, God rained down bread from heaven. In chapter 2, like Moses, there is an attempt to destroy the children. For Moses, he was spared and hidden in the reeds on the Nile during this process with him. So Moses and Jesus both were forced to flee into exile until those who were persecuting them died. And God tells Moses to go back to Egypt because those who were seeking his life has died. Joseph was told by the angel the same thing and told to return to Israel. So Matthew goes on to show us the slaughter of the innocent, and he refers to Rachel weeping for her children. And we find reference to this uh, event in Jeremiah 31.15, uh, where it says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So farther down in the same chapter, uh, Matthew leads us by, by these words to farther down in this chapter and here we hear uh hear, behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah it will not be like the covenant i made with their fathers when i took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of egypt a covenant they broke though i was a husband to them declares the lord but this is the covenant i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. That will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will each man teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. So this prophecy of the new spiritual Israel where the laws would not be a law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment for, for Jews, but a time when the laws would be written on our hearts as grace given freely. So you have Moses with the commandments, and you have the Word who became flesh, through which the Holy Spirit coming into the world in a different and more powerful way wrote the laws on our hearts. And Paul refers to this and, and baptism when he wrote to the Hebrews, and this is the testament which I will make unto them after those days, saith the Lord. I will give my laws in their hearts and on their minds. I will write them, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. We know that baptism removes the sin of, of and creates a clean heart. So we have this buildup here, just huge, within the first two chapters. If you follow uh, Matthew's you know, words in, in, uh, into those into those books where he's pulling that prophecy from just as when jesus on the cross said my god my god how uh, you know why have you forsaken me i mean this is jesus saying uh go to go down and read the rest of the verses because in the rest of verses it talks about his name being declared in a great church and a people that is not yet born will be his people 
Mm-hmm. And you know, when you talk about these events here, this is one of the fascinating things that we found in our study on the birth of Jesus is that you can plot when these events actually happened, and they actually happened in a very tight succession of time. Now, one thing I've not been able to determine definitively is why the church chose December 28th as the day of the slaughter of the innocents. I don't know if that's based on any historical evidence for that date, but we do know this for sure. Uh, we can uh, we can uh, prove pretty definitively by the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus that Herod died in January of 1 BC. We can prove that definitively. Uh, Josephus writes that that Herod's death coincided with an eclipse, and then he records the events that happened between that eclipse and the Passover, and those events would have taken about 12 weeks. Well, there was an eclipse on January 10th, 1 BC, which is almost exactly 12 weeks to Passover. So it's it's amazing how all the pieces fit together. But when you talk about Jesus being born on the 25th of December, uh, shortly after that, fleeing to Egypt, and then called back, uh, you know, the, the people who were trying to kill the child are now dead. I always had a sense in Scripture that that happened in a, in a very short period of time. It doesn't, I don't, I never got a sense from Scripture that it was, okay, well, they fled to Egypt, and then five years later, you know, I never got that sense. I got a, the sense that it was something that happened very, very quickly, and the evidence seems to bear that out. So it's, all of these things are not fantasy. They're not all stories, make-believe stories. They're actual historical events that we can actually show with documented evidence. Yeah, that's uh, uh, even if you go to the the image of what was going on with the cross and the idea of a, you know, uh, there was historians who were talking about the skies going dark, and then they're arguing that that well, uh, it couldn't have been during eclipse because of the the position of, uh, you know, the heavens at that time, and then you go to uh, there's geology and it picks up the <laughs> earthquake at about the same time, you know, Christ would be on the cross, a huge right. earthquake uh, next to the Dead Sea. So right. yeah, it's a, it's it's over and over and over again, definitely. So so definitely. so you're gonna place you're gonna place an eclipse and an earthquake on a date that just happened to be uh, Passover that starts after a Friday, <laughs> on the year <laughs> that Jesus is 33 years old, and it all points to April 3rd, 33 A.D. It's it, it just it's so beyond coincidence that it's like you said it's. I don't know how anyone could even argue uh, against it. Yep, yep. And it just, it just, it's God's love. It's God's hesed to us. Just, just confirming right. his, you know, the reality of him. You know. Right. So, so, so and, then when Herod died, and, and, and our faith is still smaller than a mustard seed. Are we right? Like, right. We'd be in front of the Eucharist twenty-four hours a day. Exactly. So when Herod dies, uh, Joseph has another dream. The dreamer. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's <laughs> ironic. Think, think about this, folks. This is a fascinating thing to think about when you talk about typology. Because the Old Testament, Joseph, was the interpreter of dreams. And the New Testament, Joseph, is the haver of dreams. 
I don't think that's coincidence. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that's coincidence. <laughs> right, right. I agree with you. But when you get into the mystagogy, when you get into the deep, you know, typology, it's just, it's a thousand times better. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's because our Protestant brothers and sisters miss so, so much by not living the religion and ritual of the New Covenant. Yeah, like you said, I think you put it perfectly earlier. They they can read the words. <laughs> but re- reading the words and apprehending the meaning um, are just, um, you know, I mean, you, you can read First Kings. You can read about the Queen Mother. You can read about about, you know, Adonijah approaching Bathsheba, asking for her intercession before the king, who also happens to be his brother. Here you had the two brothers, okay? <laughs> what, did, what did Jesus say? Those who do the will of God are my mother and my brothers and my sister. Here you have it played out right here in real time. But if you don't understand the seamless fabric, you, you miss it. And why is John called the disciple who Christ loved? It's, did he not love Peter? Did he not love Andrew? Did he, you know, did, did he not love John? I, I, mean, I mean, the, other, the rest of the uh, apostles? He's just described as the apostle who he loved because we are all the beloved disciple who he loved. Because we're all the beloved disciples. And so at the cross, when God gave his mother to the disciple who he loved, it's, it is just so, so obvious that he's given his, his mother to all of us. Right. Well, I have a theory on why Jesus loved John more than all the others, and that's because he, he, he could run faster. He outran Peter to the tomb. So that, that, I think that's what the reason was. <laughs> so if we move on through the book of Matthew, we read, mm-hmm. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in sleep to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead that sought the life of the child who arose and took the child and his mother, came into the land of Israel. But hearing that, uh, I don't know, how do, you, how do you pronounce that word? Archelaus? Uh, Archelaus. Archelaus. Uh, yeah. uh, like I said, I'm not a theologian. I'm self-taught. Yeah. It, was, it, was Herod, <laughs> yeah, it was Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus reigned in Judea in the room of Herod, his father. He was afraid to go thither. And being warned in sleep, retired to the quarters of Galilee. And coming, he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was said by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. So this prophecy about the Savior being called a Nazarene is not in Scripture. So Matthew must be referring to Jewish tradition here. Jerome indicates that Nazareth is used in reference to Old Testament verses using the Hebrew word uh, netzer or branch, specifically citing Isaiah 11.1. The Catholic Encyclopedia notes that the etymology of Nazareth is netzer, which means shoot. So Ah. Matthew... (laughs) 
So Matthew appears to be drawing us to Isaiah 11, where we read, And there shall come forth a rod out of the root of Jesse, and a flower shall rise up out of his root. And the spirit of the Lord shall shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of fortitude, the spirit of knowledge and of godliness. And he shall be filled with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge according to the sight of the eyes, nor reprove according to the hearing of the ears, but he shall judge the poor with justice, shall reprove with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And justice shall be the girdle of his loins, and face the girdle of his reins. So again, we see Matthew showing us Jesus as the Messiah through the kingly line of Jesse in the Davidic kingdom. And from this image, we get the Jesse tree with Jesus in the arms of Mary. Jesse of Bethlehem of the city of Bread was the father of the King David. So in Isaiah 12, we read, Thou shalt draw water with joy out of the Savior's fountains. You shall say in the day, Praise ye the Lord, and call upon his name. Make his works known among the people. Remember that his name is nigh. Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath done great things. Show, us, show forth in all the earth. Rejoice and praise, O thy habitation of Zion. For great is he that is in the midst of thee, the Holy One of Israel. And this is where Matthew's leading us again. And you know, I was uh, when I was working on the uh, uh, what we're going to present next week. Uh, I was looking at uh, uh, Brant Peters' book, uh, Jesus and the Bridegroom, and uh, uh, this this really applies right here on the on uh, picking up on this netter uh, theme. So uh, he uh, basically uh, wrote in here, Jeremiah 33, 10 uh, to 11, and then 14 to 17. And uh, I'll read it. Thus saith the Lord in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate. There shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of joy, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thanks, thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I'll cause the righteous branch to bring forth for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness. In the land, in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That is, there, you, you find so much in that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just tons. Yeah. You have the you have the uh, Messiah prophecy of the King. You have the image of Christ as the bridegroom. You even have the new thank offering which we get the word uh, Eucharist from Thanksgiving. You have sin offerings and thank offerings. So we're looking at the coming of the new thank offering through the new king, who is also the husband of the bride. Right. And 
something else that um, I'm, I'm actually looking up something really quick here because I want to double check myself. But I know that uh, it is Joseph who gives Jesus his name. Okay. And it's interesting because Joseph gives Jesus his name, the uh, historical date in which Joseph would have given Jesus his name would have been on the day of his circumcision, the eighth day of his life. And I'm just checking Luke chapter 1 here real quick. Okay. All right. So the angel Gabriel actually tells Mary, I wanted to double check just to be sure, but the angel Gabriel actually tells Mary that the child's name will be Jesus. But it is Joseph that the angel says to Joseph, you shall name the child Jesus. So it is Joseph who actually gives him his name, and it's on the eighth day, the day of circumcision, and that day would have fallen on January 1st, and that is why all time centers from January 1st, 1 B.C., January 1st, 1 A.D., because on January 1st, 1 A.D., Jesus would have turned one year and eight days old. So so the church got it right by dividing time right there and starting with January 1st. People will say, well, why didn't they start with December 25th? He was born on December 25th because January 1st was a day he was given his name and entered into the Jewish community. Yeah, it's just, yeah, just coincidence, right? <laughs> oh yeah, of course, it's just coincidence. Could have been in, could have been March thirteenth. <laughs> you know, if 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 you want to go there, what's uh, something I was thinking that, that was pretty fascinating, and uh, this this is a little bit off subject, but. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be doing this on the book of Matthew for a while. And, uh, you know, we're going to speak our, you know, speak our thoughts. And uh, I read a book called uh, Worlds in Collision by Velikovsky. And Velikovsky was uh, a friend of Einstein's. And Velikovsky created this theory that uh, Venus was, a, uh, was basically a comet, you know, uh, at the same time uh, we had the other planets. And uh, Venus was actually ran into Mars and uh, created uh, the events that led to uh, the 10 plagues and things. And if you look at the, the, the history of the Greeks and stuff, they talk about uh, these marriages in heaven and things. And this lines up with uh, uh, the, the planetary movements during this time period. Right. And, and so this same uh, event comet that could have created, you know, the, the plagues. And then again, in the, in the natural cycle of Venus, uh, what assisted uh, uh, Joshua in, in a battle and uh, could have been what welcomed uh, the, uh, uh, the shepherds and the Magi. So it's just a, uh, it's 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 interesting stuff, and it's he's yeah. got tons and tons of information that support supports this through uh, 
historical recordings from you know all over the world, some of the most ancient recordings of, of different uh, things. But uh, right. it's uh, it's just interesting to look at uh, different perspectives. Right. So, what did the Israelites do as they left Egypt? They were baptized in, 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 into the Red Sea, and uh, the pillar of fire representing the Holy Spirit, the Red Sea representing the blood of Christ, mystically applied to our souls at baptism, and Moses, who was holding his wooden staff as Christ, the true Moses, and the wood, the true cross, from which in the spiritual plane of reality, the blood, water, and spirit flows like the water and blood that flows from the rib of the atom of life from the cross giving birth to his, his bride. We see the spiritual nature of this also in, in, in what happened with the red heifer. So Paul wrote, uh, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, which means they are all baptized into Moses. And we are baptized uh, into uh, the true Moses, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So John was baptizing in the Jordan. Joshua's crossing of the Red Sea is a parallel, the same. And also crossing the Jordan leads to the land flowing with milk and honey, which is also a type for Jesus feeding us with the sacraments in, in, in the kingdom of heaven. So I use the word parallel because uh, in the eyes of God, uh, outside of the concept of time, uh, the types and the heavenly realities are all visualized at once. So right. God has perfect vision of the seamless fabric. So we should try and, uh, to the best of our abilities to contemplate these things as we believe God sees them. And uh, this is another one of those points that I want people to keep in the back of their minds. Think of how God sees this as we move on. Right. And that's why I laugh when I hear, uh, you know, these, these end, end times, you know, fanatics that can't get out of the book of Revelation. Uh, and they're saying Revelation is, uh, it's all in the future. Well, no, it's not. And the second thing is, I think you're going to predict how God is going to fulfill all these events. Uh, they weren't very good at predicting the coming of the Messiah. So I don't think they're going to be very good at, at <laughs> the Adventist uh, religions. Uh, right. Uh, God's not, God's not going to do it in a way that you can uh, predict and formulate. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen in the most unexpected way uh, because he has to do it in the most unexpected way, because otherwise how can we exercise faith? If there's understanding, if there's full understanding, there's no room for faith. Yep, yep. And nobody knows the hour of the day. Right. So Joshua, uh, we have images of Jesus across the Old Testament in type. We have Moses, we have Joshua, we have David, we have Joseph. So uh, let's look at Joshua. So let's read how the, the true Moses teaches us to, to cross the Red Sea. Uh, in those days cometh John the Baptist, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, A voice of one crying in the desert, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. 
And the same John had his garments of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to uh, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the country about Jordan, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So this kingdom of heaven be referred to is not the heaven above in the eternal state. Jesus told us that Satan plants weeds in the wheat in the kingdom, and the Jews were looking for their king and the reestablishment of the kingdom, which in prophecy shows us that the kingdom of David lasts forever, as, as we discussed, and there would always be a man to sit upon the throne. So therefore, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Jews hailed him as the king of Israel, the king of the Davidic kingdom, and the Romans wrote the same of the cross. So when even the apostles saw Jesus go to the cross, they saw the cross as a failure. Uh, they did not yet comprehend that when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he was establishing a fulfillment of the type of the kingdom of David in the heavenly sacramental reality of the kingdom through baptism into the body of Christ. So therefore, Jesus says to those who are born again through baptism into the mystical body, you are not of the world. If you're of the world, the world will know its own. One of the main failures of, of, of Protestants not seeing the true nature of Scripture is in seeing this mystical body as a metaphor and, and not a heavenly reality. You know, we talked about this uh, with uh, Carl Keating the other day. So uh, David Anders, a doctor of biblical history and convert to the Catholic Church, wrote in his, his uh, conversion story. He wrote, the church was the issue I kept coming back to. Evangelicals tend to view the church as simply an association of like-minded believers. Even the reformers, Luther and Calvin, had a much stronger view of the church than this. But the ancient Christians had the most sublime doctrine of all. I used to see their emphasis on church as unbiblical, contrary to faith alone. But I began to realize that it was my evangelical tradition that was unbiblical. Scripture teaches that the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.12. Evangelicals tend to dismiss this as mere metaphor, but the ancient Christians thought of it as literally, albeit mystically true. St. Gregory of Nyssa, Nyssa could say, he who beholds the church really beholds Christ. As I thought about this, I realized that it spoke to a profound truth about the biblical meaning of salvation. St. Paul teaches that the baptized have been united to Christ in his death so that they might also be united to him in his resurrection. Uh, he quotes Romans 6, 3 through 6. This union literally makes the Christian a part of the divine nature. He quotes 2 Peter 1, 4 here. St. Athanasius could even say, for he was made man that we might be made God. So the ancient doctrine of the church now made sense to me because I saw that salvation itself is nothing other than union with Christ and a continual growth into his nature. The church is no mere association of like-minded people. It is a supernatural reality because it shares in the life and ministry of Christ. This realization also made sense to the church's sacramental doctrine. When the church baptizes, absolves sins, are above all, 
offers the holy sacrifice in the mass, it is really Christ who baptizes, absolves, uh, absolves, and offers his own body and blood. The sacraments do not detract from Christ. They make him present. The scriptures are quite, quite plain on the sacraments. If you take them at face value, you must conclude that baptism is the bath of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. Jesus meant it when he said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, John 6.55. He was not lying when he promised, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, John 20.23. 20, this is exactly how the ancient Christians understood the sacraments. I could no longer accuse the ancient Christians of being unbiblical. On what grounds could I reject them all, at all? Right. So, so it's uh, go ahead. So according to what Athanasius says, so so we're all Mormons, right? We're all going to become gods, right? <laughs> yeah, we need to put that disclaimer in there again, huh? To yeah, become God so. is to unite with God in the mystical body of Christ. You cannot uh, uh, unite with God unless you become part of his very nature. Because you cannot not unite with eternity unless you become part of the very nature of eternity. And the reason for that is because a human sacrifice, purely human sacrifice, could never... Uh, atone for a mortal sin because a mortal sin is is infinite in its in its in its malice and in its insult. So it requires I an infinite that, sacrifice. Yeah, that, I believe who who addressed that. The 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 higher the one, with the more authority you sin against, you know, the more the sacrifice is is, is required, and so it's impossible for man to provide that sacrifice. Right. The sacrifice has to be of an, of the internal God, and so the internal God became flesh. So, if we move on to this same theme of uh, what's going on and what uh, Matthew is trying to do here, uh, he's also showing us uh, Jesus as the true Moses. So, God wanted Moses to design the meeting tent to very specific instructions. And in the meeting tent is salvation through Christ in the church. You know, Paul writes the formal indeed had also justifications, divine service, and a sanctuary. There was a tabernacle made the first, wherein were the candlesticks and the table and the setting forth of loaves. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden censer and the Ark of the Testament covered about in every part with gold in which was a golden pot that had manna and the rod of Aaron that has blossomed and the tables of the Testament and over it with a cherubim of glory overshadowing the propitiary, which is not needful to speak now particularly. Uh, side note, that's another death blow to scripture alone. There's nowhere else in scripture he speaks of it particularly. So John the Baptist wore goat's hair. The outer tabernacle curtains is of goat's hair. In Exodus, we read, Thou shalt make also eleven curtains of goat's hair to the cover the top of the tabernacle. The length of the one hair curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth uh, measured. Just very specific uh, in, instructions here. But the main thing is the, is the goat's hair. So uh, you should see here in the spiritual mystery of the baptism of repentance for the Jews. 
So why else would Matthew need to describe John's clothing? The outer curtain shows us the baptism of repentance for the Jews, while the laver of regeneration, the bronze laver, which the Levitical priests need to wash in, shows us the baptism that gives entrance into the flesh of Christ. Now, Paul clearly expresses uh, this part when, when he wrote uh, in Titus 3.5, which Protestants completely you know, mistaken this for some type of eternal security and once they've always saved. So uh, Paul writes, not by the works of justice, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the law of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom we have poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to the hope of life everlasting. It is a faithful saying, and these things I will have thee affirm. Constantly, that they who believe in God may be careful to excel in good works. So, we do not enter the mystical body of Christ through our own justices, but through the true laver before the veil, of which is baptism, where we are spiritually washed by the water, blood, and spirit that pours forth in the spiritual reality from the rib of Adam of life, giving birth to his bride perpetually uh, until the end of time. So, therefore, Paul shows us that this bronze laver leads to entrance into the flesh, the mystical body of Christ, the sacramental reality of the militant as the image of the holies, and the church triumphant as, as the holy of holies, uh, the cloud of witnesses we have come to. So, Paul writes in Hebrews ten nineteen, having therefore, brethren, a confidence in entering into the holies, by the blood of Christ, a new and living way, which he hath dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. And, uh, of course, as we have been describing, the mystical body is the flesh of Christ, his bride. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, present it to himself, the Father, and not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own, but nourisheth and cherisheth it also as Christ does the church, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become two in one flesh. Paul goes on, this is a great sacrament, or another translation, you got mystery. For mystery, we get mysterian, sacramentum, sacrament. Speak of Christ and in the church. So the spiritual reality of the meeting tent, who God uh, told Moses uh, as a type for Christ to build, shows us baptism into the flesh of Christ, his bride and, and, and his church. And like I uh, discussed before, uh, unless you believe that the mystical body of Christ is a heavenly reality and not a metaphor, then the seamless fabric is not going to come together in, in, you know, in your mind. Yeah. 
And you know, it's it's really interesting because we know for a fact that 13 epistles were written by Paul, but we're, we're not really sure about Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews just says it has a different flavor to it. Um, it and it's, it, it's the only one, it, if Paul did write it, it's the only one that he didn't announce his authorship of. Why do you think that is? Why why, why do you think that is, and what the differences in it, and, and how it goes much, much deeper into the theology, do you believe that Hebrews was written by Paul? Or do you believe, as some do, that, that Paul wrote some of it, and then Luke kind of kind of cleaned it up and finished it up? You know, I, I really don't know, and, and I've heard some theories that it might even been a community who Paul taught. And so they got together and, and, and saw this. And uh, just, you know, uh, could have been a community of uh, Christian Jews and uh, who were highly educated as Paul was. And Paul, you know, probably, you know, put his approval on it, I would think. But it is another argument against Sola Scriptura because, um, you know, I would argue to our Protestant brothers and sisters, Hebrews is not a book you would have chosen to be part of the canon because you can't even – Demonstrate who the who the writer is, so you can't tell me honestly that you would have chosen Hebrews to be part of the canon, and uh, and Luther wanted it removed, did he not? He wanted Hebrews and James and Revelation, Revelation, <laughs> but Hebrews was one of the books that Luther wanted taken out of the canon, right? Yep, yep. So we got, I guess, uh, ten minutes here. So, so let's return back to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew goes on and begins to show us through John's words how the spiritual Israel, guided by the true Moses, will will come about. After John rebuked the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, telling them, And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that God is able um, of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Uh, I don't know. Maybe John uh, read their minds or something on this one. so John the Baptist is showing here that God does not need the material genealogy to raise up children of Abraham. And as we have shown in our program on the diabolical deception, the born again movement, uh, he didn't. Uh, he brought even the Gentiles in the family of, of Abraham baptism. So Matthew goes on to describe the baptism of Jesus. And we know that Jesus did not need to be baptized. And we also know that uh uh, to be a Christian, we must follow Christ, and that begins with a true bronze lover entering the flesh of Christ, the bride, becoming the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, as the sons of God. So in Matthew's description of the baptism of Jesus is what happens to us through our baptism. So Matthew writes, indeed, baptize you in, in, in water unto uh, penance. But he that shall come after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, in the baptism of Jesus, uh, see in Mark 1 9, 1 11, Luke 3 21, John 1 29. Uh, 
Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan unto John to be baptized by him. But John stayed him, saying, I ought to be baptized by thee, and cometh thou to me? And Jesus answered, uh, answering him said to him, Suffer it to be now, for so it becometh us to fill all justice. Other translations have all righteousness. Uh, mm-hmm. Then he suffered him. Uh, and Jesus, being baptized forthwith, came out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. Mm-hmm. And behold, the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. So we become beloved sons of God through our baptism. Therefore, Paul writes, And you are filled in him who is the head of all principalities and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision not made by hand in the despoiling of the body of the flesh, but in the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in whom also you are risen again by the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him up from the dead. And you, when you are dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he hath, uh, talking to the Gentiles here, he hath quickened together with him, forgiving you all your offenses, blotting out the handwriting, the decree that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he hath taken the same out of the way, fastening it to the cross, and despoiling the principalities and powers, he hath exposed them confidently in open, showing triumphing over them in himself. Wow. It's just, it's breathtaking. The true Moses, after the true exodus of baptism, does what after after this baptism? <laughs> he does what the you know the true Moses uh, 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 Moses did, and he fulfilled it. He goes off into the desert for forty days, and uh, the Israelites were in the desert for forty years. We understand that Christ as the true image of Israel now, and he was tempted by the devil. So, from the book uh, "Letter to the Spirit: Promise and Fulfillment," uh, we read. Mark and Luke mention the 40 days, but do not add in 40 nights, a small but significant addition since 40 days and 40 nights is a phrase associated in the Old Testament almost exclusively with Moses and Elijah, who is portrayed as a Moses figure in this respect. Moreover, the rabbinic tradition, which perhaps predates Matthew, states that the golden calf incident happened because the devil tempted Israel and accused them before God, but Moses stood in the breach and overcame the devil's accusations. So Jesus, like Moses, is tempted by the devil. Further, in the last temptation in Matthew's gospel, the devil takes Jesus up on a high mountain to show him all the kingdoms of the world. This is parallel in the Jewish tradition, developing in Numbers 27, by the portals of Moses on the mountain receiving a cosmic vision of, of the whole world. It, it's, so we have it, we have from the beginning Matthew uh, bringing in this image of the kingdom being restored. We have him showing us that this kingdom is God's hesed, God's love fulfilled. Even though you have this genetic uh, line that was, you know, manipulated all over the place with Gentiles, God still kept His promise with Abraham. We have the Messiah. We have uh, the complete uh, buildup of the beginning 
of how we enter into the mystical body of Christ through baptism. It's just amazing, Luke. The, the book becomes so gigantic when you know all this. It's, it's, I mean, and, and it just goes back to what we've said so many times. You sit there and you can read the words, but unless you know all this backstory and you know the message that that Matthew was trying to to uh, convey, how it's tied to the old Old Testament, and then you look at the events that were actually happening, he was actually revealing the events that were actually happening in real time during these events that Matthew is conveying to us that show that Jesus is the Messiah. When you look at all that in its entirety, it's just, it's like walking into a into a, a small hut somewhere that you think is this most humble, small little hut, and then when you get inside of it, it's a cathedral. And that's what it's <laughs> like. It's it's just it's so much bigger than most people realize. It it's it's an entire Bible in one gospel. It's just when I try to bring some of the stuff up to our Protestant brothers, they fall back on this phrase: "You're twisting the scriptures." But yeah. Unless you see the bigger image, you're not going to see scripture. And it is not us who created this image. Paul led us to it in the images. Jesus led us to it in the, in the images of, of, from even, even his words on the cross. Matthew leads us to it over and over and over again. And it's amazing because there's so many Protestants that almost act as if the, the Old Testament is an, is an afterthought. Well, we're not in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Matthew is going to great lengths to show that the Old Testament does matter, that it is the blueprint. And, and it, unless you understand the Old Testament, you can't understand, like, like, if you don't understand blueprints, you can't understand how a building is built. And if you can't understand the blueprint of the Old Testament, the history of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Davidic kingdom, how it's all put together, you, you can't understand Matthew. You might as well not even read it. it. It's impossible for you to understand it. Same with John. Same with Luke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what a start. And we haven't really, I mean, we've just basically given an overview. Just scratch the surface. Two, two hours to scratch the surface and, and give it an overview. And, and uh, next week, we, we, we really... Jump right in. So, Luke, would you would you end us with a prayer, please? Well, let's pray to our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We'll be breaking down that prayer next week. Oh, that that's fantastic, and uh, and uh, I think that uh, next week when we do this show, it will be September 11th, and I think we will we'll probably have a a few thoughts on that as well. So God bless everybody. Have a wonderful week, and Luke, I'll see you a week from today. Okay, God bless. <laughs>